Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 107. Today's guest is Henry Akins. Henry Akins is the founder of Hidden Jiu Jitsu and a black belt of the legendary Hicks and Gracie. Henry and I discuss his childhood growing up in Oklahoma, how he headed west to train under Hicks and Gracie, how he got his black belt in a remarkable eight and a half years under Hickson. He discusses what he learned, what he saw with this time running Hickson School in Los Angeles. We have a Q&A where we discuss all things jiu-jitsu. We speak about the evolution of jiu-jitsu. We speak about what he learned training under Hickson. It was so awesome to have Henry on the show I have admired his material and instruction from afar for a while. I've been on his online academy for years, Hidden Jiu-Jitsu. Henry has a remarkable way of showing the most basic moves that you think you know, but then shows you these underlying hidden details that totally change your game and just make it so much more effective. It is a fun conversation. Henry is a big thinker. He has a brilliant Jiu-Jitsu mind. So... I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with the one and only Henry Akins. And remember, life is built, not born. Henry Akins, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Henry, it is an honor to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who mm -hmm. are you and what do you do? I've been doing jiu-jitsu now for 28 years. I started training with Hickson Gracie in 1995, and I went from white belt to black belt with Hickson. So I was just in a really, really blessed place and time where I had the opportunity to train with Hickson, you know, while he was still fighting those first five years I was training with him, he was actively competing and fighting in Japan. And he was kind of uh, what I think was at his prime, not so much physically, but technically he was at his prime. I became the head instructor at his school for about 10 years at the Hickson Gracie Academy in Los Angeles. I, so I was teaching there for uh, 10 years. And yeah, that's pretty much my story. That's That's what most people know me for is you know, uh, being one of Hickson's black belts, which there's not that many of, and especially there, there are some, but there's not that many that are actively sharing his jujitsu. Henry, I want to yeah. get into your journey. Uh, one, your amazing online content and platform of hidden jujitsu. I know for one, I have gotten so much out of that were moves that I thought I knew and I've known for a decade just totally yeah. changed my way. I look at the moves, everything from the oompa to the cross choke to even the soul stealer. Uh, oh yeah, that's a that's a crazy. It's a it's a super powerful technique, and unfortunately, it's not used so much in jujitsu. But yeah, it's one of the only positions. It's only one of the only positions where the position itself is a submission. So I love the position. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. And I want to talk to you about concepts of pressure and efficiency. And I also have a Q&A from some of our listeners. When they heard you were coming on, I got a ton of questions. Does that sound good with you? Yeah. Amazing. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. So before we do that, let's start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? 
So went to high school in Oklahoma. I was there. I lived in Oklahoma for about six years. And that's really where the idea of grappling as a martial art really kind of popped into my head. You know, I was surrounded by wrestlers and Oklahoma is a huge wrestling state. Many of the guys, uh, they start wrestling by the time they're like three or four. Mm -hmm. So um, I realized how effective wrestling was as a combat discipline. I always loved the martial arts. I always loved martial arts. I grew up like kind of watching Kung Fu theater on Saturday. And, uh, (laughs) you know, back, back in those days before the kind of the world was exposed to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, most people, when they thought about martial arts, they thought about punching and kicking. And so, uh, you know, at a young age, probably around 12, 13, I started Taekwondo and I was doing Taekwondo and I got really good at it, but I was always because of seeing how effective wrestlers were in in fights, I was always looking for a grappling martial art. What really attracted to me to the martial arts was the discipline, the honor, those kind of distinctive traits that you see in a lot of martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so I was always kind of looking for that. And so uh, fortunately, before the first UFC, probably about six months before the first UFC, I had a copy uh, given to me of Gracie in action. And uh, once I saw that, it kind of changed everything for me. You know, I was like, wow, this is, this is what I've been looking for. This is it. Cause you know, they're obviously in a gi. So that was always kind of like, okay, these guys look like martial artists. Right. And just seeing the application like that, they're not looking just to pin each other. They're looking to dominate another person and they're looking to finish fights so that that really attracted me to uh jujitsu and so the first time i had the experience of um training with hickson was in 1994 i went out and and i think it was like thanksgiving break it was november of 94 trained there i was a pretty tough kid at the time and i got completely destroyed just demolished and i never felt so helpless in my life so that's most people's kind of a lot of people share that first experience of, of jujitsu. So I had a very, very similar experience, just got manhandled by guys way smaller than me, guys that I thought in my mind, there's no way, you know, at least I could put up a fight. At least I'll be able to give these guys a hard time. And it was just, mm-hmm. I was just getting played with. Uh, and so after that experience, I said, you know, I have to learn this. And so I, I, as soon as I went home from that trip, I made plans to move to LA and start training with Hickson. So I started training with Hickson in June of 95. June of 95. Let's get back. Your first experience, what did it feel like the first time you got manhandled? I remember I trained stand-up my whole, like from like, maybe like 14, 15 years old. I did Taekwondo. I did Kenpo. I actually trained about 10 years. I had a black belt. And then I heard about this Gracie Jiu-Jitsu here in Philly. And I went down to Maxercise. It was the only school in Philadelphia. And I met Steve Maxwell. And he... I went on the map. It was like a one-on-one. It was like a beginner class. And he was, what would you do with this? And I thought I could, I was never that big or strong, but I thought I could defend myself. And he put Mm -hmm. me in a move and like, I had no idea. Like I, like I absolutely had no clue, no answer, like totally exposed. Like within 30 seconds, I knew I knew nothing. And uh, it's just such a helpless feeling, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it it wasn't. And I mean, just to give your your listeners an idea, um, you know, I was... I was super into working out, super fit. So um, 
back then I, I was at the gym all the time working out. So you have this false sense of how effective you'd be in a fight just because of my physical attributes. Like I was doing, you know, I was busting out probably 18 pull-ups with a 45 pound plate between my hands. Wow. So pretty strong as a, as a, as a young kid, uh, because I was just at the gym all the time. And I really, you know, the idea of, okay, really wanting to be tough, know how to fight, learn martial arts, literally I was getting tapped out every minute. And so uh, when you talk about just a helpless feeling like, gosh, these guys, you know, I'm way bigger, way stronger, super fit. And these guys really just have their way with me. Some people that experience breaks them and some people that experience motivates them. And uh, that's what it for me. It inspired me. There's some people that run towards that, like you just said, like you did. And some people see that and they go, heck with that. I want nothing to do with that. Where do you think that mindset comes from? The run towards what you don't know and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was it was definitely not it was not a pleasant experience. You know, it's it's it was it's quite demoralizing and it it crushes a specific belief system that I had in my head. Like, hey, I could probably hold my own against most people, uh, and then rolling with guys that were smaller, shorter, lighter than me. And uh, yeah, I think I think it's so unique to the individuals, right? That that question has popped up in my head quite often throughout life about why do some people run towards hardship and struggle and why do some people i think it's almost human nature to avoid difficulty pain i think most animals you know if they don't have to exert a ton of energy they try not to or they won't but some people have that mindset i think it's a growth mindset right of like hey let's go into the hard let's go into the difficult let's because there's so much to learn and grow in that place how about if someone asked the 18-year-old version of Henry Akins what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would the uh, 18-year-old version of you say? I mean, 100% it was I, I wanted to do martial arts for a living. So I wanted to be, which is crazy because, you know, back then when I was younger, they, they say your brain is not fully developed, at males at least until like mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Um So I didn't think any of this through. I was just like, okay, I want to go out here. I mean, at the time, there had never been an American that had gotten a black belt from Hickson. And so me going to LA and just with this mindset, like I'm going to be a black belt under Hickson uh, and I'm moving out here and no matter what it takes, I'm going to get my black belt. And eventually the goal for me was to open up a a school and do do martial arts for a living. Um, And back in those days, there was just not, a lot of examples of people that had a very, very successful career uh, teaching jujitsu, running a jujitsu school, right? This was like the super early days. And so there was nowhere to really learn jujitsu. I think back then you had the Torrance Academy, Mm -hmm. uh, which Horian and Hoyce, uh, Hickson's, you had the Machados who at the time were still all together in Redondo Beach. And I think Henzo uh, was in New York at the time. And I think Carly Gracie was up in Northern. And maybe I think Half had just got there as well, had, mm-hmm. had just got to San Francisco. But um, there was not a lot of places to really learn uh, jujitsu. So when you go out there, you find Hickson, you start training with him. Do you, like, when you move out there, like, is that an announcement? Did you, like, let him know, like, hey, um, are you close enough with him yet? Let him know, like, I'm dropping my whole life and coming out and train with you? Or, or were you no. just, just a guy who just showed up every day? I'm just some kid. Yeah. 
just some kid. And basically I, I moved from Oklahoma to California and uh, I didn't know anyone left my family, all of my friends, everyone behind. And so that was a really, really great, like in hindsight, because literally I had no distractions, right? I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anyone inviting me out. So literally I would show up to the academy. I, I was there at seven in the morning, a little bit before seven, because the first class was at seven. There was a seven o'clock class and an eight o'clock class back then. Show up before seven and I wouldn't leave the school until seven o'clock some nights or nine o'clock other nights. So I was there 12 to 14 hours a day. And I was basically, because I had nothing else to do. I wasn't interested in really doing it. I had no money. So that that's a little bit of a limitation in itself. Or, I, you know, I had a very, very mediocre budget. Uh, I had some money saved up. But I didn't have a job at the time. And eventually what happened was after a couple months, after about two months there, because I was just there all the time, the instructors offered me a job as a secretary to basically help them out to answer phones and do stuff during class. If someone walked in during one of the classes, I would go help them talk to them so the instructors could basically teach. So uh, yeah, I became the secretary of the school after a couple months. Really? You were always there and then you just started to help out. And next thing you know, you're like the secretary answering the phones, walking yeah. people in, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, be helpful. There's leadership at all Great leadership lesson there. There's leadership through all levels of the organization. Even though you weren't in charge, you took the lead and you found yourself responsibility. And all of a sudden you earned your way into the, uh, the academy. That's amazing. How about how old were you when you left Oklahoma to go to LA? 20 years old. So when you leave, what do your family and friends say? Hey, I started, I met this guy, Hickson. And he, I want to learn from him and I'm leaving Oklahoma to go train jujitsu. What did your family and friends say? My Family was very supportive of me going to do that, but coming from, so my mom is Vietnamese, growing up in an Asian culture, uh, they also are very, very big on education. And so they're like, okay, you can do this, but you know, you need to also sign up for school after a year. So after a year, you're allowed in-state tuition after, you know, you establish mm -hmm. residency in California. So that was the promise I made to them is I'm going to go train for a year and then you know, after a year of like being at school, I'm going to start back up with school and, and get a degree. They didn't think there was any potential in jujitsu for me to have a career and be able to have a good living, uh, support a family. Yeah. So how about in the early days when you first moved out there and you're just there all day? How did you support yourself? I know LA is one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Yeah. The first so like I mentioned, uh, I got a job as a secretary at the school uh, and they were paying me $200 a week. I was just getting paid cash. But before that, I had saved up some money because I was working in Oklahoma. And what happened was I, I rented a, a room from an older lady in El Segundo who had a, a house, uh, like a four bedroom house. And had, you know, all of her kids had left, grown up and left. Uh, and she was just and her husband had passed away, so she was just living by herself. So she just wanted the company. So she rented me a room for 400 bucks. And basically, my budget I just remember like my weekly budget for food. I had a whole budget written out. Like I had a weekly budget for food of about $40. So I would go to this grocery store in kind of like the hood in Hawthorne in LA, which is a lower income area. It's called Food for Less. 
and uh, I would buy my groceries there. And I mm-hmm. had a very specific budget. I had to basically the same thing that I was buying every single week, you know, like two boxes of cereal, a thing of oatmeal. I would get, you know, a bag of apples, a bag of oranges, bananas, a bag of lettuce, one loaf of bread, a couple cans of beans and a couple other things. But yeah, for 40 bucks a week was my budget for food. And I would just bring, you know, pack uh fruit with me or whatever with me and you know that was kind of what i ate week wow and then so then you start training at the academy from your perspective and you've seen jujitsu all over the world what makes hickson's version your version like the hidden or the invisible like what makes it different than other jujitsu you see throughout the country you know um as i've been exposed to kind of more style of jiu-jitsu there, there's definitely styles right and that's i think one of the things that i was aware of at a very young age i thought that okay i'm doing jiu-jitsu they're doing jiu-jitsu we're all kind of doing the same thing i didn't realize how much of a difference and as it's grown as it's it's exploded i think there's even more now diversity things have evolved so back then i, I wasn't really aware that there was such different styles and such different methods and ways of doing things. And I think the difference between Hickson slash my style of jujitsu is really a focus on the fundamentals, a focus on the basics, and a kind of hunger to master those things. There's so many things that as I started traveling around and teaching all over the world, what I noticed is the way that we do a lot of the basic techniques is very, very different than how it's commonly taught at other schools. And for me, I have always had a curious mind. What's important for me to understand the why, why we do things a specific way. And what I've just realized is, man, Hickson figured out like how to do all of these basic movements at such a high level and so efficiently or for what I've seen traveling to all the other schools and seeing the way that other people do the same techniques yeah it's just been the, the most efficient and the most effective and so he he really took the time to think everything through and look at you know one of the things that hickson said was he was never satisfied with the technique until he could do it against anyone even when they knew it was coming even when they know even when they're trying to defend he could still get it to work and so that's a very very high standard of effectiveness with a technique And there's tons of stories of him, you know, all of the world champion black belts that had the opportunity to train uh, with him throughout the years will, will even acknowledge and say that, you know, sometimes he'd be training and he would just call out a submission and then he'd catch them five times in that specific submission. So even though they know what's coming, they're trying to defend it. What's your favorite Hickson story of all the training stuff? People like floating in, testing him or trying to see how good he was or people coming in training for worlds. I, I heard stories of like, People, when he was in his 40s, people before they went to the worlds, they'd come train with Hickson, even though he was 10 years, 15 years older, he would destroy them. And uh, like yeah. the guys that would go into the worlds, he would beat them in their 40s. What, what could you speak to that? That's the cool thing. I, I got to saw, like, so back in the day, you know, nobody had cell phones. There was no cell phones. People didn't have cameras. Very taboo to uh, even try to record the trains. The trainings were very private, you know, like what happened in the gym stays in the gym. Yeah. I mean, for 15 years that I was with him, I saw 
so many of the current world champions and multiple time world champions, absolute world champions come in and Hickson just toyed with them. And they all share this as very similar experience. They all basically say the same thing. All of them that have, you know, they, most of them have not been shy to speak out about their experience because everybody asks, what was it like to train with Hickson? And they all share the same thing. They either, they felt like a white belt. They felt helpless. They felt like they couldn't do anything. So that's coming from guys like Fabio Gogel, mm-hmm. Solo, you know, the other Gracie brothers, the Machados, all of the best guys in the world at the time. And I saw him train with, you know, Fabio, Roberto Traven, Fabio Leopoldo, Gabriel Vela, um, Solo, Shanji, you know, those guys are absolute legends of the game. Uh, and they all ba- pretty much had very, very similar experiences. So one of the things that really stuck out doing some research on you, like the Hickson is such a long promoter. Like it takes so long to get belts from him. You got your black belt from Hickson Gracie in eight years. Is that correct? So I started in 95, got my belt in so I started so probably like eight and a half total of those eight and a half total i probably had a year and a half off of training wow. so uh, i blew up both my acls in a tournament when i was a purple and i wasn't able to train for a year while i rehab myself wow um, i didn't have money i didn't have i didn't have medical insurance at the time and so uh you know they wanted twenty five thousand dollars for surgery uh for each knee and it would have taken me out a year anyways for the ACL surgery, they do one knee. They can't do both knees at a time because you need one knee to be able to uh, rehab. So they were, you know, they offered to do one knee, uh, give me six months to rehab that knee, and then they would do the other knee. And then it would be another six months. So I was like, man, uh, regardless, I'm out for a year and I don't have $50,000 for this surgery. So I just, yeah, I, I was kind of forced to rehab myself or fix, you know, figure out a way to get back to healthy so that I could train. Yeah. And then I, I toured my, many people already know this, but Maynard James Keenan, who is the lead singer of Tool, is one of my dearest friends. We've been friends for almost 30 years. We started almost the same, almost the same time. I think he started maybe a couple weeks before me at Hickson's. And so uh, when they went on their Enema tour, when they released that album, I was with them for six months touring. Really? Yeah. For what role? Was it security or what, what role were you in? That's a very, very loose uh, term of what I was doing. Uh, Maynard brought me along mostly so that we could hang out and train together because he wanted to still be able to train while he was on the road. Okay. So um, we, you know, we we would train together uh, usually a few times a week or get a workout in or do something, but he just wanted a buddy to be able to, so that he wasn't, he was still able to train while, while we were on the road. Wow. I blew one knee out once back in the day. Did you blow them both out at the same time or just during the same tournament? Like at the same moment in the tournament? Same time. What yeah. happened? What, what happened there? I, I was competing in a tournament. Uh, it was a Joe Morera tournament and it was the day I got my purple belt. So I received my purple belt and uh, won my division, decided to go into the absolute um, because I, I had won my division pretty quick. Uh, I had two submissions. Um you know, pretty quick. So I, I was still pretty fresh after that. And so I was like, Oh, let me, let me give the absolute a try. And, um, the first match in the absolute, I went for like a drop Sienagi on the guy 
And when I dropped down to both of my knees, he basically like jumped and sprawled to the side. So basically both of my knees shifted. Like as I dropped down, he basically, you know, I had all of this weight coming down on us and then he basically went over to the side. So yeah. Wow. Do you hear like the double pop? Cause you feel like the double pop. Is that awful? Oh man. Um, what What's crazy is like, there was a little scramble after that, right? I, I missed the throw. I turned, <laughs> there was a little bit of a scramble. I get back up and I feel both my knees buckle. Oh. And what's crazy is uh, Ken Gabrielson was refing that. I don't know if you're familiar with who Ken Gabrielson is. He was one of the dirty dozen. He was refing the match and he looked at me when both my knees buckled and he was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm good. I'm good. You know, and I just thought, oh, okay, I tweaked something in my knee. But yeah, by the end of the tournament, because I ended up winning that match. And then I had another match with another guy that was huge, Garth Taylor, who's like 260. I lost the match with Garth. And after that, I couldn't walk. After you blew both knees out, you actually went for another match? Yeah, well, I was hobbling around, right? I was limping. And I so I was just like, fuck, I can't really walk. So I'm just going to pull guard for this next match. And then I pulled guard. And, you know, Garth, I mean, there's not, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't close my legs around Garth. So he ended up passing pretty easy, passed and held me cross-eyed and basically, yeah, won the match. And um, yeah, pretty much. So I was out after that, the second, the second match in the absolute. And then um, pretty much, yeah, I, I wasn't walking for a year after that. That's amazing that you even went to the next match. I know what it's like to blow one out. Two, I can't even imagine. You're a beast. Oh my gosh. I, I think it's just young, uh, young, a bunch of testosterone and adrenaline and um, being in that environment where I have all these people kind of um, looking at me and, and you know, I, I didn't want to look like a, like a, like a wimp in front of uh, all of my peers, all the people that I kind of looked up to and respected. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hickson was there. Uh, my other instructors were there. So I just, I was just like, you know what? I'm going for it. And what would Hickson do? You know, Hickson, Hickson, <laughs> there's a WWE. Uh, he told me a story when he was a orange belt, you know, uh, a kid caught him in an arm bar and he let his arm break and uh, he ended up choking, uh, finishing the kid with a choke. So that was, that, that was the kind of standards that I was kind of trying to, uh, you know, felt like I had, had to live up to. So. Yeah. Wow. No, man. Proximity is power. You're around something like that and it just rubs off. That is great. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. How about this? Getting to the point where you got your black belt, can you describe the day or the moment or the, the, the five minutes you got your black belt? Like, did you know it was coming? Like, can you describe it? How did that go down? I didn't know it was coming. Um, I knew at the time, uh, like uh, as a brown belt, I was, um, I, there was a point, you know, when we're training, we go through peaks and valleys, right? We all have that where you, there's times where you feel like, man, I'm on fire. Everything's going great. Like my training's going great. I feel like I'm like, you know, most of these guys that I train with, I'm a, a dominating or whatever, or I'm being able to, I'm able to dominate guys that used to give me a hard time. And then all of a sudden you'll have a valley where like, man, I, all these guys that I used to train with, the roles used to be so much easier. And now like, you know, it's such a struggle. Right. So I, I was definitely peaking at the time. Um, for me, you know, what's interesting about my belts, all of my belts is I, I never felt like I ever deserved any of them. I never, ever felt like I was good enough or worthy. And part of the reason is 
when when you train with Hicks and he's at such a high level where even like when I first got my brown belt, he tapped me out like literally five times in five minutes with the same choke, right? With this hammer fist choke from the mount. And I, I still felt helpless. So I was like, how can I be a black belt, uh, you know, with this standard? Um, so I always looked at him like, how how is it even possible that I have the same belt as Hickson? Like, uh, I'm a black belt now. That's like, doesn't even make sense, you know, because um, you you still feel like a white belt when you train with him. Um, so, yeah. So I never felt like I really deserved any of my belts. I always felt like I needed to be better. But um, one of the things he shared with me is that he said, Henry, listen, you know, um, and this is when I got my brown belt. Um, he said, Henry, look, you know, you're a brown belt now. Um, he says, you're not a good brown belt, but you will grow into it. You'll grow into the belt. Eventually you will be a good brown belt. But, you know, I think with all the belts, there's, there's, you have um, levels to it. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, obviously when he's giving me the belt, I'm not going to, uh, I told him, you know, at the time when I got my brown belt, I said, man, I really don't feel I deserve this. I feel like it's such a, especially with Hickson, for me, I always felt like I had to represent the belt and I just mm -hmm. didn't feel like worthy. Like, man, this is a big, you know, and I know, it, you know, it's, it's back then, especially to the way that training was going. Um, it just puts a target on your back, mm -hmm. you know? Each one gets heavier and heavier, doesn't it? Like, I, I, yeah. the blue, I was excited, and that was the last one I felt excited for. Because every time you get the purple and the brown, like, I feel like I have a Halloween costume on. Like, I'm not a purple, I'm not a brown, and and it just yeah. it, the brown hit me the hardest. When I got the brown, it felt like it weighed 30 pounds. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, I, like, I don't really want common. it. I yeah. hear that from a lot of people. I think it's really common, you know, and really. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's just, it is what it is. Like, so now I tell people, you know, I've, I've been a black belt for 19 years. I get better every year, every year that I train, I get better. And I have a deeper understanding of the art that journey. Like I've had my black belt twice as long as all my other belts combined. Wow. Right. Perspective. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, so for me, I just tell people enjoy the journey and people, people tell me all the time, I don't deserve my belt. I don't deserve my belt. I'm like, man, it's not about the belt. You'll keep growing. You'll keep getting better. You know, okay. belt is all relative. It's just, it's your instructor, uh, basically acknowledging your progress. That's all it is. Uh, that's, a, that's a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. One thing that always stuck out when I watch your work and I see all your great online stuff, when I see hidden jujitsu and I see the way you teach, it's not technique based. It's not like, here's a technique. Here's another technique. It's mm -hmm. more like learning and understanding like the basic underlying movement and the yeah. why you're doing something. How early in your jujitsu did that come into play? We're learning, understanding the underlying movement and the why before the technique. Could you describe that? You know, Hickson has such a deep understanding of the art, like like no other. And he's got such a scientific mind when it comes to jiu-jitsu. He used to be able to look at a new technique that he'd never seen before. Guys were coming from Brazil all the time, um, showing him like, hey, this is what the guys in Brazil are doing. This is the new techniques. These are the the kind of evolution. And he would literally be able to sit and look at the technique for five minutes and either figure out how to counter the movement or figure out how to improve the movement within five minutes, right? How to shut it down and kill it or how to... And so 
that was really huge for me, seeing that process, seeing him um, analyze techniques and break things down, kind of reverse engineer everything, right? To really develop a deep level of understanding of how each technique works and why it works and how it can be countered, where the weaknesses are in the technique, where the strength is, where the control is in each position. So that that really came from Hickson. And by the time I was a blue belt, I was already kind of thinking in those terms. So I was already starting to problem solve a lot of the issues I was having in training. Oh man, this guy keeps catching me with a seat or, oh, I keep doing this or, oh, I can't pass this guy's guard because he's grabbing me like this. So I was already starting to think in those terms where I was able to kind of problem solve for myself. And what I would do is I would ask Hickson, I said, Hey, Hickson, you know, any, whenever I would see him or whenever there's the opportunity, this guy keeps doing this to me or this technique. This is what I was thinking about doing to defend it or counter it. What do you think? And sometimes he'd be, yes, that's good. Sometimes he'd be, uh, no, try this. This is better or mm-hmm. no, that would really work. And this is why. So understanding the why has always been super important to me, you know, and then, um, understanding the approach to like Hickson's approach when he counters or shuts down movements, uh, the big thing too is like, well, when he counters things, he's so stable in his jujitsu. He has such positional dominance that it's, it's hard to advance on him at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning like once he gets a position, you know, it's, he's so good at maintaining and controlling. It's almost impossible to create scrambles with him and it's almost impossible to even escape, right? He's so good at countering everything and shutting down. So that was huge, you know. That is so cool. That's something that just always stuck out when I see your content and see you teach and explain moves. So let's jump into the Q&A. These are from our listeners. These are in no particular order. And I just want to throw them out there. And you could, if you could share your knowledge, that would be awesome. Here's question one. Henry, from your perspective, how has the popularity of sports jiu-jitsu affected BJJ as a whole? Has sports jiu-jitsu replaced jiu-jitsu for self-defense in some academies? I mean, absolutely. Right. I I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, You know, with with jujitsu, especially when you're training for sport, I mean, it's a very different approach and it's very different focus. Right. Like when you're training for sport, there's a possibility. A, there's a specific time limit. Right. Which is very different than training for self-defense. So a lot of times you're doing five minute rounds, which means you can expend a certain amount of energy within five minutes. Sometimes, you know, at the black belt level, it's 10 minutes, but black belt adult, right? And then points, like, you know, the objective is obviously to win when you're training for competition. So how do you win each match using the least amount of energy possible? Mm -hmm. Because that's super important. And so um, I think with anything, anytime you put rules in place, anytime people train for that specific rule set, even the best guys in the world, when they have a tournament come up, they'll train for that specific rule set. And so that's kind of what happened. In jujitsu tournaments, because you're training against a guy who is also willing to go to the ground with you, that's why you see so much guard pulling, Mm -hmm. right? the 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 lack and everybody complains about this and everybody talks about this the lack of ability to take down an unwilling opponent that that is kind of being lost there's most of the schools that i go to and teach at most of them do are not training clinch work like basically how to clinch with someone that's striking Mm -hmm. right that's lost because you don't have to like when you're training for tournaments you don't have to worry about strikes you don't have to so why put so much emphasis on being conscious 
about something that you're never going to have to deal with if that's the only environment which you're going to apply your jujitsu. So yeah, definitely that's, it's shifted at a lot of schools and a lot of, a lot of instructors and a lot of, you know, to their credit, think like, Hey, if my school, uh, my students are winning a bunch of tournaments, or if they're, you know, podiuming them, if they're winning a lot of medals, it's going to help me grow my school. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I think a lot of people have that mindset and that philosophy. So yeah, it's almost like a social media effect on Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Like, you, cause you know, it's, you go to the tournament and you win a couple of matches, you're standing on the podium, you got that Instagram moment, and then the school can tweet it out. And it looks like, you know, you're, you're doing great work, but does that get you ready for a street fight? This is, the, this is the flaw in in a lot of martial arts, right? Once they become sports, because one of the main things and important things with sports is we, we want to limit the athlete's exposure to injury, which is really, really important. And so you create rules to help these things be safe. When you're training for a fight is probably one of the most unsafe environments you'll ever be in. And so it's a very different environment, right? Like we're training at tournaments, you have these soft mats that you're training on. So, hey, I'll go for a, a flying arm bar, right? Because yeah. you're, you're going to be landing on really soft mats. This is probably not a technique you would do on concrete or on asphalt or where there may be uneven ground, yeah. you know? Sometimes you see that person has that triangle uh, and then like the person lifts them up and they're they're still working where they can get slammed. Like, the, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's crazy. Appreciate your answer. Second question. Can Henry please speak to about how to best pressure test your jujitsu? And also, could he speak to, I've heard Henry say, why we should be able to finish our chokes with only 10% energy or something's wrong with your mechanics? Could you speak to that? Sure. Pressure testing. So the first question I think was pressure testing your jujitsu. Yeah. I, I think we all pressure test our jujitsu on a regular basis when we're training, right? And that's why everybody loves and is such a believer in the art is because on a daily basis, when you train with someone, you're training with uh in a hundred percent resistance. The the person is trying to stop you from doing everything you're trying to do, right? You you're when you're rolling with someone, you do not have good intentions for them. They do not have good intentions for you. Meaning you're trying to dominate and submit them. They're trying to not allow that to happen. So that's one of the beautiful things about jujitsu. And that's what I think what everyone is attracted is the realism. Like, Hey, this works against hundred percent resistance. Yeah. Right. So I think that that is pressure tested. There's other things that you can do to pressure test your jujitsu. Like um, I'm actually going to be releasing a course on this pretty soon, but when you're attacking, understanding when you start to attack, how to be stable in your position. So one of the things I will do quite often as I start to attack, because attacking is usually a step-by-step process. It doesn't like a, it's not instantaneous, usually steps to every submission, right? You put one mm-hmm. hand here, you put one hand here, or you grab. So what I do quite often is I will pause along each step and see, because we know the person's going to resist. We know they're going to try to get out. What can this person do to get out? What, where would they move? How would they do it? And each step of the way, I want to make sure that I'm in control. And so that's kind of a fundamental element of jujitsu. You know, they always say position before submission, really the understanding the idea is how do we dominate these positions? How do we put our opponent into a position where we have control where when we go for a submission there's nothing they can get out mm-hmm. right uh and 
the main thing about getting out is how do we limit movement? How do we stop them from moving? The more movement available to your opponent, the more opportunity they have to escape. So from these positions, because there's a, in every position, there's a certain amount of control. Where can they move to get out? And what adjustments would I make? How would I adapt to kind of shut down those avenues of escape? It's really a lot of that is just if you can limit the other person's movement and shut down their avenues of escape. So that controlling aspect is just so important before. Yeah. So, well, the crazy thing is, is there's always right with, with jujitsu and that's the beauty of jujitsu. There's always a way out, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, you can't a hundred percent ever control anyone's movements for the most part, right? For the most part. But the idea is, yeah, how do we stabilize the position? How do we control movement so that when we go for a submission, there's very little opportunity for them to get out, right? Yeah. And obviously, there's escapes for everything, right? There's escapes for everything, but um, yeah. then it comes down to skill level. How good are you at the escape and how good are they at the finish? At the finish. And then they mentioned something about yeah. 10% energy. Could you speak to that, like finishing your chokes with 10% energy? Yeah, so chokes, I mean, one of the things to understand about the the chokes, and specifically when I'm talking about chokes, I'm talking about like the blood, what a lot of people call blood chokes, right? Where we're basically putting pressure on the carotids to make the person pass out. Those chokes should require very, very little energy because all we're doing is we're just collapsing these basically arteries, which are just underneath the surface of the skin. And if you look at the artery, like these blood vessels on your hand, right, that are just underneath the surface of your skin, how much pressure does it take to collapse it? When when they're taking your blood, what do they do? They tie a rubber band around your arm. And what that does is collapses the the blood vessel. It starts to swell. It starts to become engorged. So if you think about it, the pressure of a rubber band, how much pressure is that really putting? So really to be able to collapse these blood vessels, and you don't even have to collapse them a hundred percent for people to pass out to be able to collapse them. It doesn't take much pressure. I mean, look, I can take one finger and push down on this blood vessel and collapses the blood vessel. So it's not about the amount of strength or pressure that you have to put. It's about the precision. You want to Mm -hmm. make sure that you're applying the pressure in the exact right place. And so a lot of people think that those arteries are to the side of your neck when actually they're, they're actually to the front, right? They're just on the side. So like someone takes your pulse Mm -hmm. and they put their finger there. That's, those are basically your carotids, right? And so that's the idea is how do we collapse these two blood vessels that are right here when you put two fingers here very gently on your neck, you can actually feel your pulse, mm-hmm. right? They, people do that all the time. Like they show up to a scene, someone's injured or someone's unconscious. Let me check to make sure they're alive. Let me just gently place my two fingers here and I can feel the pulse. So it doesn't take, it, the, those blood vessels are just underneath the surface of the skin. It doesn't take much pressure to collapse them, right? And then you're saying, so the precision of where the pressure goes is more important than, than the strength. Way aspect more of important it. than the strength. Way, wow. way, way more important than the strength. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That is so cool. How about this? You just mentioned you have a new course coming out. Here's the next question. Henry, how best to utilize online video instruction and have it improve your game? What's a good ratio time between mat time versus study online time with the courses? Does that make sense? Yeah, so different for every individual, right? I mean, because I think we all learn in such different ways. I think obviously online material, what a blessing. It's such an amazing tool because now you have the ability to 
learn jujitsu in the privacy of your own home at your convenience. You can watch a specific technique over and over again, because a lot of times when we watch our instructor teach a technique, we'll miss things. You know, the eye gravitates towards certain areas and you'll miss other things. And so that's why, you know, very rare for any of us to really master any technique the first time we see it. That's, I think, a huge benefit. You can learn from basically all of the best instructors in the world nowadays from the comfort of your own home. And you can watch these videos over and over again. And we know the way that people learn, you know, many times you have to read or watch something several times to really absorb all the information. That's why a lot of times when people talk about studying for school, you read the chapter, then you read it again and you start to highlight stuff, then you read it again, right? Because we know like, hey, usually when you read it, they say the first time you read something, you only absorb about 40 to 50% of the information. Yep. So that, that's the cool thing with videos. You can rewind, you can watch it again and again and again. And the other thing too, is you, you really have access to, Hey, I want to learn how to escape triangles. Boom. Let me look it up. How do I escape yeah. triangles? Right. You, so you have that access. Like it, it's not like the old days where, man, I keep getting stuck in this triangle and I might have to wait like six months for my instructor at my school to show the escape before I figure out how to get out of it. Right? You have to take a private. Right. Absolutely. You could just go to so, your escape video and just dial in and keep watching. Right. Right. So that that's, I think, amazing. That's, and I think that is such a helpful, like people are so blessed to have that exposure to that. But when it comes to time on the mat and time watching video, I think it's different for everybody. At the end of the day, you have to experience it, right? Jiu-jitsu, like once you see the technique, once you think you understand it, then you have to take it onto the mat and play with it. And then not only play with it, but you have to test it against different opponents. Um, because that's the other thing too, is like different people will apply things different way. Even though the techniques looks the same, sometimes people are squeezing or engaging their muscles a little differently, which will create a different sensation. Mm-hmm. So that's important. Yeah, that's great. How about this? Here's a question. It says, Henry is known and is phenomenal for breaking down jujitsu and how to train pressure. When Henry comes across a new situation that he hasn't experienced before, what is Henry's problem-solving process? And then that, and it's got a follow-up is, what do you think about when you are designing solutions for issues you have not come across yet? Like what's your, I guess your problem... Well, it depends on the technique, right? Like what, what is the technique that I'm seeing? Is it, is it a sweep? Okay. I want to understand where the leverage is. I want to understand how I can move my opponent as effortlessly as possible. Is it a position of control? Like is someone trying to control me? Then I want to start to like, I let them hold the position. Uh, Hey, just pause in this position. Hold me however you'd hold me. Uh, and let me just start to move around and let me just see where there might be openings, where it feels like I'm stuck and where it feels like I can move, right? If it's a submission and put me in the submission, let me feel it. So, so much of it for me is I need to feel it. I want to, I want them to put me in the position. I want to feel it because then once I feel something and I start to move around in that position a little bit, I can start to see, Hey, where are the strengths, where are the weaknesses, where I can move, where I can't move. I can start to understand how things work. Um, because again, it all goes back to control, right? Jiu-jitsu is all about control, dominating the other person. And so if I'm looking to dominate the person, I want to see like, hey, this is a position. How can I control this position so that I can eventually get to the submission? I can put them in a place where they basically can't escape and I can put leverage on either a joint or around their neck to make them pass out. Where if I'm being controlled, where is the weakness in this control? Where could I move? How could I move to be able to get out? 
Here's the next one. Henry, what's your perfect first lesson for BJJ? Someone who knows nothing, walks into your academy. What do you teach them? Introductory class. Introductory class, I would show like one or two things from standing up. Some basic like jujitsu self-defense from like a very common situation, maybe like a neck grab or someone grabs you from around your arms. And the important thing too, is like, for me, I want to show people the beauty of jujitsu. So, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to grab you from around your arms. What would you do to get out of here? And usually it would be people would struggle. And then I show them a technique, try this. How does this feel? And, And show them a technique where they can do it effortlessly and escape and deal with that same situation. Um, and then all of a sudden that for me, the experience for most people that opens people's eyes. Wow. That was amazing. Like just from knowing how to do this now, if I deal with that same problem again, there's a very simple and easy solution, right? So usually one or two things from standing up and then a couple things from the ground, maybe like mount escape, right? How would you get out? This is a horrible position for you to be in. How would you get out of this position? That's great. How about this, Henry, if a black belt today went back into the 1990s, would they walk through the black belts back then or would those OGs hold their own? <laughs> so um, that's a great question. I, I think because of the growth of jujitsu, there's more jujitsu practitioners today than ever, especially in the United States. What happens is I think there, there's a giant bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you when you look at the black belt level, there's such a huge diversity in level at the black belt and kind of going back to what I mentioned to you before, look, I've been a black belt for 19 years, twice as long as all of my other belts combined. And I get better every year. Mm-hmm. So I, when I got my black belt in 2004, I would destroy that version of myself. I would absolutely destroy, you know, even though I was younger, I was a freaking beast physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was training all the time. I would absolutely just maul that that version of me. So there's a huge diversity in in level at the black belt level. And I think most, you know, most guys that are that are black belts will tell you that there's white belt black belts and there's black belt black belts. So it, it really depends, you know. I think when you talk about guys at the highest level now, they're obviously very, very, very good. Would they destroy? the guys from however many years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard one to answer because how far are you going back? You know, how far do you want to go back? Um, I mean, 30 years ago, I've been training with Hickson now for 28 years. So even like almost three decades ago, I mean, Hickson was, rolling with guys that are are legends that are that still people hold in very high regard like Fabio Grigel who's created more world champions than any instructor right Solo Shanji Shanji just retired not long ago right uh, those guys were are absolute beasts and so um you know and and so uh, yeah how far back i think it's better if you like kind of pick individuals but would a black belt nowadays there, there's such a huge range. Yeah. I mean, back then there was not that many black belts and the pool and the standard was so much smaller. You yeah, know, sure. the black belts that I had the opportunity to train with back in the day, man, they were all so good. There were not a lot of guys that were getting black belts if they weren't at a specific level. Now, um, 
you know, there's guys that are in their fifties and they start off training jiu-jitsu. And then by the time they're 60 something, then they get a black belt. Okay. Mm. Could they ever compete with a guy that's 30 years old, a black belt that's competing all the time? I guess we could tie that up with the next question. It says, Henry, how do you think Hickson in his prime would do if he competed versus Hodger or Gordon Ryan? Everyone in their prime, who is Henry taking? Yeah, that's another tough one because how do you rate them? They all excelled so highly at different times. But uh, here's one of the things I can tell you. Um, if you look at the match that Hodger had with Buchecha, mm-hmm. um, Hodger was 37 years old at the time, the last match, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they had two matches. He was 37 years old. I think Buchecha was 24 at the time. So Hodger was 13 years older. Uh, Buchecha outweighed him, I think, by 15, 20 pounds. Uh, Hodger had been in retirement, had come out of retirement. He had been retired for five years, and he hadn't he hadn't worn a gi, right? He had he hadn't worn a gi in a while because he was focused on MMA. So he comes out of retirement. The match lasted around six minutes, basically four minutes stand up, two minutes after it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hodger submits Buchecha. Pretty incredible, right? Pretty, uh, I think everyone was pretty blown away with Hodger's performance that match. So imagine if Hodger slapped hands with Buchecha and then did that again and then again and then again and then again and then again, right? If he submitted him five or six times in a row. So that's kind of what I got to witness Hickson doing to all of the world yeah. champions of the best guys in the world. He It wasn't just like a match where he has to submit the guy once. He would literally, they would come to the school to train with him and he would roll with them. And in a 10 minute match, he would submit them like three or four times. Wow. That's crazy. That's so, crazy. Uh, Gordon, you know, when, when they mentioned Gordon Ryan, Obviously, Gordon is looking to be, he's looking like he might achieve, be able to achieve that level. I don't think he's there yet. And just the the reason I say that is because if you just look at his last match with Nicky Rod, even though I heard from from a very close uh, source that he wasn't feeling good that day, he was having his stomach issues and he looked a little bit flat, but you know, he's going against Nicky Rod. Obviously, uh, in the grand scheme of things, Gordon has been training a lot longer. I think Nicky's only been training for four years. Nikki was able to kind of survive against him for 20 minutes. And then when he went into it, and at one point tore his ankle, right? He, he ripped uh, Gordon's ankle. Gordon is definitely a tough son of a bitch. Cause I was at that match and uh, I was in the stands and you could literally, it sounded like someone took a t-shirt next to my ear and ripped a t-shirt next to my ear. It was that loud. Even the ref like looked at, you could see if yeah. you watch the match again, the ref yeah. looked and kind of flinched. Right. So, ripped Gordon's ankle. And then the overtime rounds, right? He caught Gordon in a rear naked choke. And if the match would have gone probably another 10 seconds, more than likely he would have gotten the finish, right? By the end of that, by the third overtime match, the end of the round, he had a rear naked choke fully locked in. Gordon didn't have any defense uh, and was basically kind of caught in that position. Um, And then time ran out. Time ran out and Gordon pointed at the clock and basically saying, hey, time's out, time's out. But if it would have gone probably another five or 10 seconds, I think Gordon would have tapped. I never saw anyone even getting close to 
anything like that training with Hickson, like the best guys in the world at that time. And this is when um, Hickson was 40s in his 40s, mid 40s. And even here's another example, even in his 50s. uh, So if you guys remember the match with Crone, Mm -hmm. uh, ADCC with Marcelo Garcia, Mm -hmm. um, Crone almost caught, caught Marcelo in a guillotine. Marcelo mentioned that he almost tapped it was so tight. He he felt like he was blacking out. And then he thought in his mind, there's no way I'm tapping. Um, end up getting out and then end up, you know, getting crone. Uh, but Marcel said that was one of the toughest matches of his life. And this is when Marcelo was already like the goat, right? Like he was mm-hmm. peaking. He said it was one of the toughest matches of, of his life against crone. Um, Hickson was in his 50s, injured, um, you know not not in great shape at all um and he was still catching crone every two three minutes <laughs> that's crazy yeah. that's, 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 that's the best guys in the world at the time marcelo you know saying oh man this guy just gave me one of the toughest matches of my life and then hickson still when he trained with crone just uh able to dominate him uh wow. pretty quickly so you know it's it's so hard to say level the only thing I can testify to is what I saw um, yeah. was around for from my perspective. And based on what I saw, the guys that had the opportunity to train with Hickson too, many guys came out and spoke out about this in publicly in the open about uh, just how far, uh, how much farther ahead he was than anyone else. So thank you for sharing those stories. They're phenomenal. Last part of the Q&A here. It says, Henry, if you could change one thing about BJJ today, what would you change? I could change one thing. It's hard to say. That's a good question. Um, Maybe training methodologies. When I think about what could be improved, right? What could be improved? Because people always think, oh, it needs to be more self-defense focused. At the end of the day, different people train jujitsu for different reasons. And so the divergence from sport and self-defense, that's up to each individual to figure out for themselves. Most people, uh, fortunately, we live in a, in a day and age where most people will never, ever have to use jujitsu to really defend themselves or anyone else. So, you know, we're living at this one of the safest times in all of human history. One of the things that I feel that can be improved is training methodologies. That's it. Like basically training methodologies. I think a lot of schools, they're still really big onto the idea of just at the end of every class doing open training, like free rolling, you know, when I just think there's better ways to go about using your time. Uh, If you want to develop a high level of skill, extremely high level of skill, I think positional training is probably the best tool combined with flow rolling. So you're basically saying if you could take, let's say you do that 45 minute like technique, they teach a move or a technique. And then instead of that last 15 minutes, just say you only have an hour that day, that last 15 minutes, instead of getting three rounds in, do some positional training or some flow rolling and working on a specific thing, a specific part of your game. Yeah, I always like, so for me, I use flow rolling as a way to warm up. Mm -hmm. Um, When I do the flow rolling rounds, when I have my students doing it, the, the idea is they have to go at a very fast pace. There's no submissions allowed. It's usually like a three minute round no submissions, fast pace. If they get any dominant position, 
and their opponent can't get out, then the person will change the position themselves, change the position so, so that you can keep moving it and going at a really fast pace. And so what that does is it trains students and trains people to be able to understand the transitions. It trains your mind how to basically recognize as positions change where you end up to and how you should be moving, what you should be doing. Um, and it trains people how to basically deal with the scrambles, right? That happen yeah. from time to time in jiu-jitsu. And then the the positional training is the exact opposite. The positional training is basically you pick a position and then I will limit the position uh, in certain ways. Like, hey, you're mounted and you can only use this technique to get out or, hey, you're on the mount position and you can only use these two submissions. You, you know, you structure it depending on what it is specifically you are trying to help your students develop. So I, if I just did a class on the mount and we were doing, hey, let me show you guys a cross collar choke from the mount, then I would make that the last training. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to do a positional training. So I'm going to put you in the position where you can actually train and develop what we actually practice in class. Yeah. Um, with the flow roll, with the open rolling that most gyms do and the problem is, is for a lot of students, that's kind of like the most fun. They say, oh, that's the most fun is just rolling. Yep. Problem is, is that people always tend to go to their strong positions when they're rolling. They always tend to go to where they're their best. And so you, it's very rare that you get a chance to work and develop the areas where you're weak. So that is awesome. Just to recap there, flow roll to start, maybe three minute rounds, no subs, dominant positions, switch positions. It helps you deal with the scrambles. How, how many rounds would you do there of the three, say three minute? Oh, yeah. Rounds? So usually what I do is three, three minute rounds. So it's like 10 minute warm up, right? Three, yep. three minute rounds. And usually because it's such a high pace, because it's fast movement, right? Man, people are dripping wet and yeah. their lungs are after yeah. 10 minutes of that. And then we get into the technique. And then, you know, I, I always do for me, when I do a class, like if there's 30 minutes at the end, I will always do 15 to 20 minutes of positional training, specifically okay. focused on whatever it is I was, we were working on that day, because I want to put after they've, after the students have had a chance yep. to practice the technique with a hundred percent cooperation, right. Against a cooperating person, because that's normally when we do technique, the, your training partner is not resisting so much. Mm -hmm. And you want to put them in the, the position where they can train it with a certain level of resistance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's ways that we can gradually have people increase the resistance. And so that's the other thing that I think a lot of schools and a lot of instructors don't understand is how to train things in a progression, because normally what happens is, when you first learn something as a student, you learn it and you practice it with someone that's 100% cooperating. And then you're expected to apply the technique against 100% resistance. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to bridge that gap. And so there's a way to actually train the skill, train and develop your skills so that you can actually bridge the gap by gradually increasing the resistance. It's pretty insane because in no other sport do we do that? There's no other sport where we, you first start to learn to play and then you have to deal with hundred percent. Like you first learn to hit a baseball and then you're trying to hit hundred mile. Yeah. Power. Doesn't make sense. You first no. start to learn to drive a car and then they put you in like a formula one car and you, you're going to drive formula one or you're going <laughs> to drive NASCAR, right? You're going to kill yourself. As our so uh, in jujitsu that we, we do that, which is uh crazy is super bizarre. That's all. Henry, thank you for answering that. That is gold. I took a two pages of notes. Thank you. How about just moving on, wrapping this up? A couple of fun questions to wrap things up. Henry, with all you got going on, all that you're all over the world teaching classes, 
you're, you're constantly putting in new content on your hidden jujitsu website. When you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? You know, I don't watch TV very often. Sometimes like I'll watch like a documentary. For me, I'm always trying to learn. So I like documentary type stuff. So I might watch a documentary if I just need to like zone out for a little bit and read. I like uh, being in nature a lot. That's one of the, so I moved to Las Vegas three years ago. And that's one of the nice things about Las Vegas is we're right in the middle of two national parks. So Red Rock National Park and Lake Mead National Park. So um, yeah, I, I, for me, nature is really, really healing. So those are kind of some of the things I'll do to just kind of zone out. Henry, most high achievers have a routine either to start their day or to finish your day. What does either like the first 30 minutes or last 30 minutes of your day look like? Like what's your routine? Well, I, I was meditating every morning for an hour and I need to get back to that because I felt like that was so beneficial. My my mind, as soon as I wake up, it just starts to race, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, it just starts going like, what do I got to do today? What do I got to do today? Blah, blah, blah. So yep. um, I need to get back into my meditation practice. When I was doing it, that was extremely helpful. But right now what I do is I get up and I have three dogs. I go to a park and I take my dogs out to the park and that's just 30 minutes so that they can get out of the house. They can do their thing. But I'm also just to be in the sun and mm -hmm. get that sunlight into my eyes and just start to walk around. So I'll walk for 30 minutes and just start to kind of loosen the body up and get my body just some activity going. Yeah, that's great. Nothing like being outside. And you get the morning right, the rest of the day follows, doesn't it? Like you get the yeah. first like half hour right. How about this? It's about all the stuff you're working on now. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? The most exciting project is kind of what I'm going to be filming in my next two courses. And one of the things that um, I've started to recognize lately is a lot of people, a lot of people that train, a lot of black belts specifically, have a very, very weak attack, meaning that normally tends to be the last thing to develop in most people's game, their ability to attack. Because if you think about it, when you first start training jujitsu, right, you're a white belt you don't know anything, you're getting dominated. And so the first thing you kind of learn as a white belt is just how to survive, how not to get submitted, right? How to stay safe, how to survive. Eventually, once you're able to survive long enough, you start to figure out how to get out of certain positions. Then once you start to get out of certain positions, you learn to how to get to dominant positions. And once you start getting to those dominant positions and you start spending a little bit more time there, you start to really learn how to stabilize those positions. Like, oh man, I'm I'm mounted. And then you might lose it for five seconds. And then eventually you start to learn, oh man, I can keep this mount longer. I can keep the cross. You start to learn how to control these positions longer. And in being able to control the positions longer, that's what really creates the opportunity to finish, right? Because mm -hmm. like if you get to a dominant position and you're only there for five seconds or 10 seconds, that means you only have five or 10 seconds to finish. So um, the attack seems to be the last thing to develop in most people's game. That's something that I've noticed. A lot of people have a very, very weak attack. And it's usually related to two things. A, they don't know how to stabilize themselves when as they're attacking. And so a lot of people, what happens is a lot of people don't know how to control the position without using their hands. So a lot of people really try to control positions with their hands. And the problem with that is... Now they're forced to make a choice. I need to let go of my control in order to attack. 
right? Yep. And so really understanding how to control the positions with your body so that your arms are free to attack. Like if we're going for a choke, if we're going for an arm bar, usually we, we're using our arms to some extent. Developing that, how to how to control positions so that when you start to attack, you're stable and people can't get out. And then the other thing too is how to layer attacks together. A lot of times when you start to attack, when people go to defend and at the high level, it's almost a guarantee that they will defend, right? What else opens up? So a lot of times people throw out single attacks, like I'm going to go for this move and then the person mm-hmm. defends, and they're kind of back to zero or back to square one. Yeah. So when you start to attack, what is the most common ways that they're going to defend each attack? And then what does that what other attack does that open up for you? How do you take advantage of their movements? And that's what we're always looking to do with jujitsu, which is awesome is at the high level, I always say, you're not fighting that person, that person becomes their own worst enemy, because every movement they make becomes a mistake. Your job is to make every movement they make a mistake. How do we capitalize on their movements? Right? Yeah. So as they go to defend one thing, and a lot of times when people attack, they get tunnel vision. You know, they they just want to force and insist on that attack because they don't have other options. If that attack gets defended, then they're kind of back to square one. They're like, oh, people don't understand how to attack in combination and how to layer attacks together. So wow. that's so, kind of my next project. When, when is that coming out? I'll be filming part of it this weekend. I'm going to see how much I can get done. It might take two or three sessions to be able to film all the content that I, I want to film. And then I'll have to organize it and put it together. But hope it, it'll come out within the next few months. One of the things you said is uh, you're not fighting that person. That person is their own worst enemy. That is that is phenomenal. That is so good. Thank you for sharing that. A couple of questions. That's the thing with jujitsu, right? We, we like we want to set people up. We're always trying to capitalize on mistakes, right? And and at the high level, when you are aware of all of the opportunities, ideally everything your opponent does becomes a mistake. Even if they do the right thing, our job is to make it the wrong thing. How about this? Wrapping up here, Henry. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed. What would that lesson be? Keep training. I've been a black belt for 19 years and I keep getting better every year. So the as long as you're training smart, the growth will never stop. It's such an amazing art um, because as much as you put into it, you, you will get out of it. It's done tremendous things for my life. And I think everybody, a majority of the people I talk to uh, say how much it's benefited their life. So Keep trying to train uh, as long as you can. And obviously, there's smarter ways to train as you get older. That's good. Keep training. Stick to it. it. Everybody has the potential to get so much out of it as long as they they just continue with the practice. Henry, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. If people are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? Yeah, so... um, I have a website, hiddenjujitsu.com, and that's where you can find a lot of most of my online content and my instructionals. I also have some stuff over at BJJ Fanatics, some material and content over there. If you are looking to find me for a seminar or camp, I have a website called hiddenjujitsucamps.com. So I do um, two to three camps a year where it's like anywhere from four to six days of training with me in a very, very intimate environment. Those are always super, super cool. And people love, you know, I for me with the camps, people love traveling. 
and people love doing jiu-jitsu. So I figured how, how can I combine these two things that people are so passionate about where they get to travel to exotic destinations and also uh, get amazing training while they're there. In seminars, if you want to see my seminars, I post on Instagram, Henry Aikens BJJ, and on my Facebook. So just follow me on Facebook and Instagram if you can. And go to Hidden Jiu-Jitsu Camps if you'd ever like to attend a camp with me. What I'll do, Henry, is I'm going to put everything you just mentioned in the show notes, Instagram, your website, all your camps you have coming up. Uh, I cannot wait to see that next uh, series you have coming out about putting the tax together. That looks amazing. Thank you for joining us. Your online content has helped me out tremendously. It is so good. And all our mutual friends could not speak more highly of you. And you're just a world-class instructor. So thank you. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and tell all the boys in Philly. uh, I give them all a big hug. Thanks, Joe. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.